The Money Show. Other people's money. Now, a long time ago, I was watching a TV show. I don't know what it was. I don't know what channel it was on. I don't know the context of why I was watching it. But there was a guy speaking a language I recognized, but I'd never heard before. It's one of those weird moments. It was a, a West Rand equivalent of Tzotzital, maybe. I don't know. It was Afrikaans, but it was blended with English in a way that was so natural and so fluid that I absolutely loved it. And that was also the first time that I heard the name Rian van Heerden. And Rian, I've heard it subsequently described as Heisgenwet Afrikaans. I don't know if that's polite or rude or bad for Heisgenwet or kind to Heisgenwet. But there was this most magnificent blend. And I don't know when you were doing it, if you still do it. But it was just so, I don't know, quite charming, actually. Good evening, Bruce. Good to uh, good to speak to you. There's actually a term for this. They call it mingles. Mingles, I love that. Mixes, yes. <laughs> I will call it but, mingles. Uh, but um, my my mingles isn't as good as uh, some other people's mingles that I that I meet in the in the streets of Pretoria. Is, is mingles a thing? I mean, is it is it is it a language that people speak to each other? Um, you know, it's a, it's a thing. I tell you what happened, what, what happens in our language, because when, uh, when Afrikaans, uh, was in its, in its, um, uh, in its forming phases, of course, as you know, it was Dutch. And then it morphed into a brand new language because people started using Dutch in a, in a more comfortable way that was comfortable to them. So these days we, we start incorporating words um, because we feel that the Afrikaans equivalent is too archaic. So, you know, we talk about steak and not BSRs, for instance. Um, uh, we, 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 we talk about um, a, a DVD player or a, a, a decoder, in here, decordierder, stuff like that. <laughs> so it's just a more comfortable way of, of speaking the language. And we find mm. that uh, more people understand us when we speak. Afrikaans this way. I'm not a purist at all, by the way. No, no, clearly not. I mean, I was just, again, it was that first time I'd seen you on TV and I was like, that, that, there's something special going on there and you're watching a language evolve and stay relevant and continue. It, it, the security of the language is almost guaranteed by the fact that it evolves. It doesn't sort of become um, like Latin. It's no longer relevant to anybody. Yeah, very much so. Um, you know, it's a, it's an, it's a language that keeps on adapting. Um, and it's a language that, as you know, it's one of the most spoken languages in this country. But the, uh, the, the language that we all know and love is not the one that was spoken 50 years ago. Um, when I started doing radio, I, you know, we were students at the time and that, that, this was the way we spoke the language. You know, that's how we communicated with one another. And we didn't try to be cool. But it was just more comfortable to use Afrikaans this way. Mm. And um, still to this very day, that's the way I speak the language. And I think most people in the country speak it that way. And that's why the language will always survive, because it keeps on evolving. You've been on Radio for Ages, haven't you? I mean, until recently, you were hosting the Afternoon Drive show on Jacaranda. You you done with radio? Is radio done with you? Or you, you've moved on to many other things? <laughs> would, you, would you like another, another, another go at it? 30 years, Bruce. Yes. Can you believe it? Like. 30 years. But, um, you know, I was saying to someone today, if you do anything for 30 years, then, you know, there's clearly something wrong with you. You need to reinvent yourself regularly, just like Afrikaans invents itself. 
So I, you know, towards the end, I was doing radio as a hobby, and uh, that's not the way I should have uh, should have been thinking about radio. I should have thought about radio as a career, but to me, it was it started being a hobby. So I started going from work, like other people would go to the gym or play golf or whatever. I actually went to a radio studio, and I felt that more of my time should be spent with my listeners. Um, it shouldn't be uh, secondary to the rest of the things I'm doing. So when I realized that it was time for me to go, and I, I, did, I don't think there was anything left to prove for me um, on the radio waves. So who knows what the future will bring, but it, it definitely will not be terrestrial radio again. That won't happen. But it is, I mean, it has been, and for a long time, I think, the greatest job in the world. It is, there's a huge privilege associated with, with being is in people's personal space, being that intimate with them in their cars, in their homes, in their ears. I mean, you're in their brains, you're in their lives. And, uh, you know, uh, there, there is a huge privilege that comes with it, isn't it? And that's why that responsibility to the craft is, is so important. You know, I, I, I remember specific function that I attended. I was in, at OFM at the time. I was doing the afternoon drive show as well there. And uh, I think it was in Falcom. And we were at a function. Um, I think it was emceeing it, if I remember correctly. And afterwards at the buffet. This was for the proto teams that work on the mines. I don't know if you know what the proto teams are. Oh, absolutely. Are. They're the bravest the guys, guys on the mines, yeah. Exactly. Uh, now, you know, they get sent in if there's serious trouble on the mine. So I'm standing at the buffet and um, one of these guys walk up to me and he takes off his proto-team tie and he gives it to me. And he says to me, you know what, um, I want you to have this because thanks to you, when I get home in the afternoon, I don't scream at my children, I'm not nasty to my wife, I don't kick the dog. I've actually, after my hectic day, I'm relaxed, I'm in a good mood, so I think you deserve this. So he he gave me his tie and I still have it to this very day. No, that's, um, that's lovely. That, yeah. Yeah. That just reminded me of why we're doing this. But like I say, and I, I must be very clear about it. When, when I felt that I, I put my listeners secondary to other projects, I, I thought it's not fair to them. Mm. I can't just walk into a studio and, and put on the mic and do a show. Um, there needs to be more effort. And it felt to me that I wasn't putting enough effort in. I was, I was, until the day came when I could. You know, I was having a conversation um, with a producer friend the other day saying, too many people treat radio like a side hustle. Um, <laughs> and, you were, yeah. and you were feeling yeah. that. So what, if, if, if radio became the side hustle, what became the main hustle? What became the job? The job, um, ironically enough, when I left the, the breakfast show on Jacaranda, I did that for about five and a half years. Um, I went into television. I, I was always a t- TV presenter in some form or the other. But I wanted to create my own shows and sort of push the boundaries a bit of what we see on television. Um, and this grew exponentially. You know, we started doing a show called Scalampy, which was the Afrikaans equivalent of Cheetahs. <laughs> that, that's, that was our first one. Um, and then the productions, the all, all sorts of interesting takes on television, um, sort of taking over, taking over my day. And this last one, uh, which was a mammoth production, the uh, Real Housewives of Pretoria, um, just started taking every single minute of our attention and time um, straight into the nights. So that's currently the day job, is, is producing television shows. And we also have a restaurant in the Centurion called Delizioso. 
Now, I want to talk about that restaurant in just a moment because sometimes smart people do silly things. And, I mean, you've done lots of, <laughs> you've done lots of very, very smart things. I wonder if Delicioso is one of those. We'll talk about Delicioso in a moment with Rian van Heerden, the uh, producer of television shows, including Skellumpy. Real Housewives of Pretoria, and another one called Sex and Afrikaans. Oh, my goodness gracious. Yeah. I see a theme here. We'll pick up on that theme with more with Rian in a moment. The Money Show. Other people's money. So Rian van Heerden, was the van Heerden household growing up a wealthy household, a comfortable household, a, a cash-insecure household? How did you grow up? <laughs> I, I ran into Gary the other day at my restaurant. So he said, you know, do you know how rich your grandfather was? So my grandfathers on both sides were very wealthy men, the one in construction and the other one had hotels. Uh, their children turned out to be not wealthy at all. Um, they were, because of the way they were brought up, uh, they had another take on money. And my father was one such a man. My, my father could not work with money. You know, God rest his soul, but he couldn't. Um, and my grandmother was also not one of those people that would say, you know, she was one of those, those people that believed you had to spend all your money before you die. <laughs> you know, you don't leave anything to the children. So my father uh, basically moved from job to job. Uh, he was un- unemployed for, uh, you know, most of the years that we, that we lived in the house or most of the months at least. Uh, and then he would move on to a new job and then we would move to a new town. So... Uh, you know, I grew up, I remember there was a time when uh, <laughs> uh, we were out of food and um, someone dropped off a tray of eggs and we literally survived on those eggs, I think, for a week. So to this very day, you know, I'm not a big fan of eggs. I had it in every form imaginable. But I'm very grateful for it because it taught me a lot about business and the value of the rand. Um, so I started selling at a, at a very young age. I think it was nine years, ten years old. Uh, and my mother used to knit these, these sleep socks. Remember them? Those sleep socks. Uh, it was a big thing in Randfontein at the time. <laughs> I, don't, I'm, I can't say I'm, I'm familiar. I've never been that cold, fortunately, to need sleep <laughs> socks. I've been lucky enough not to need sleep socks. Yeah. Knitted bed socks. There we go. That's the term. Yeah. And I would sell them at the library. <laughs> um, and I and, and I remember starting off, you know, being a very shy child. But uh, this taught me how to sell and what you had to do to be able to convince people to buy these things that they didn't actually need. So to this very day, um, you know, I, I'm I'm very conservative when it comes to spending money. Um, you know, I'm very aware that there needs to be uh, at all times you need to you need to have something. Uh, that will catch you when you fall. So, no, I, I didn't come from a rich um, family at all, Bruce. No, we had to, I had to fight for where I am today. But it, it does explain why you are as prolific as you are, I think. Um, because you are. I mean, you're, amongst media people in South Africa, you are among the more prolific um, creators of content and generators of content. Thanks. And, and I, I think that that's sort of, uh, whether it's conscious or subconscious, is driven by the fact that I'm not going there. I will not do that. I've, you know, I've experienced it and I don't want to go back there. Mm. No, definitely not. You know, I, uh, I, I said to someone the other day that um, when I actually started working, um, I was 
11, I'm not talking about, you know, selling the bed socks, but when I actually started working in a shop, I was about, I was about 12 years old and I haven't stopped working since. <laughs> um, and I've loved every minute of it, but when you get to, uh, you know, close to 50, then you look back at your life and you say, well, this is, this, I've become some form of a robot. It's all I've done if I've, I've only worked. Yeah, but come on, you've had um, fun. And, you've had fun. And, 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 that's a jaw. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> you know, I've had a lot of, I've had a lot of fun in the process. Yeah. Uh, you know, to say the least. But, um, you know, there's never time to spend the money. It's, it's, isn't, you know, isn't that good? It's, it's that's, a, that's a wonderful problem to have. That's a wonderful problem, Brian. <laughs> now, is the restaurant been a good, bad, or indifferent decision? I don't, you know, in a restaurant, in my opinion, and, and as you know, I mean, you're the expert in the country, but I, uh, it's never a good investment. Um, but when I went into this business, you know, at the time we thought, you know, let's try a few things. Let's try a restaurant. It's just around the corner from our offices. You know, we can have meetings there because I'm spending too much money on meetings. Um, but what I realized is every, at the end of every month, I pay uh, the salaries of 22 people. Um, and 22 families survive because of this restaurant. You know, so... It's, it's not important to me that I get a salary out of it, but it's important to me that I contribute in some way um, to the massive problem we have with unemployment. And you can see that every single one of those 22 people are, you know, they work their butts off in that restaurant on a daily basis. Um, and I can see how enthusiastic they are about what they do. So my reward out of the restaurant is the fact that, that we can support 22 families out of it. It's a small restaurant. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's nice to get to the end of the month and you're able to pay salaries into my staff's bank accounts. And I know, you know, that they've been waiting a month for this money. Um, and, uh, you know, we, I, I think for, you know, in, in our industry, I think we, we pay our staff as well as we can. Um, but before we took over the restaurant, it was about to close. That's where it was going. Um, so it was nice to be able to, you know, to, to keep it alive and, 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 and still be able to feed people and, you know, reach a certain standard. And I love that. You know, that to me is, is worth my time. Yeah. How do you make a small fortune in the restaurant industry? Start with the big fortune. I mean, is it costing you money or <laughs> is it looking after itself? Well said. No, no, it's looking after itself. We, the money that we invested in the restaurant was returned. Uh, they, you know, we, I mean, we, we got the money back. So it's, it's, it's running itself currently. There's a small profit at the end of the month, um, you know, that I usually reinvest in chairs or whatever the case might be. So to me, it's, it's, it's important that it's there yeah. because the alternative is that is all of those people will be on the street. And that's not what I want. And then um, are you good with your money? I mean, you, don't, you, didn't have any, you didn't have great role models growing up, but have you taken advice no. as you've gone along? How have you sort of managed your own uh, money from all of the different things that you do? My grandmother was my advisor when it came to money. That very same woman that believed you spend it all for your children. Yeah. See, I mean, she was shrewd and, and she could, and, and I found out like, because, you know, you can imagine where, what generation they come from, but she was the power behind the throat. My grandfather, had, I think he had three hotels, but she was the real power bound throne. She was the business mind. And at a very young age, she sat me down and she said, you know, um, my kid, uh, knowledge is power. 
And you need to, number one, understand that you need to know as much as possible as about as many things as possible. Then you also need to understand that when it comes to your income, you need to have three streams minimum. It's like a chair with three legs. When one gives in, you have two others. And she taught me that very important lesson. And she said, you also need to remember that, you know, it's the old story of, um, you know, looking ahead and saying, the next eight months, I must be able to look after myself. Um, and she, she, she made sure that she left that legacy. And to this very day, you know, there was a time, I, when, when was it, Bruce, when the markets crashed? Was it 2009? Eight, yeah. You remember that? Yeah. 2008, when, every, when all of us lost a, you know, a small fortune. And I, I lost a lot of money in that crash. And that was the last time I believed a broker. And, and, and what I, what I ensure these days is that I always have access to my money. You know, also living in South Africa, um, I, I rather want to see what's going to happen in, in 2024 and then decide, you know, what I'm going to do. But at this point in time, it's important to me that I have certain assets, um, that's, you know, that, that's, that's property that's there. But, um, I, I want to have access to as much pos- possible cash as I can. I remember my grandmother said to me, the only people uh, who have money are people that can go to a bank now, withdraw a million rand, put it on the table. Those people have money. Yeah. And I think those were very wise words. Rion, we must leave it there. You understand the clock better than I. You've looked at it longer than I have. Rion van Eerden, uh, radio host, producer of television shows and restaurateur in his spare time, if there's spare time. Thank you for sharing tonight on The Money Show.